Hi everyone and welcome to the 828 podcast. I'm your host Sarah Jenga and thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're all well and having a blessed week. Weather is getting warmer, thank God. Uh, Restrictions on lockdown are easing, thank God. And hopefully we can go back to church soon, which I'm very excited about. But for this episode, um, I'm really keen to talk a little bit more about a lot of what's been happening in the world recently. There's obviously been a lot of talk about justice and racial reconciliation in the US, but also across the world but also an increasing conversation around social impact and the impact that we can have in our communities to help one another, especially during this crisis. So I'm really keen to introduce to you our guest for this episode, Nancy Chan. Um, Nancy is a STEM trailblazer who is passionate about social impact. Um, Just a little bit about herself and what she's done during her, her time in social impact. She's been an electrical engineer. She studied at MIT, graduated with a 4.9.50. She's a very, very clever lady. Um, She worked as an engineer in the tech world for some years before finally making the switch to the social impact sector and then eventually completing an MPP from Georgetown University. So since then, Chan has continued to excel in combining her skills and passion to work on impactful projects with nonprofits and philanthropic organizations. And currently, she works as a strategy and evaluation lead at the Justice and Opportunity Initiative of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative in the US. US. And Nancy is also the founder of Social Impact Yoders, an online platform which helps provide guidance and perspectives for people interested in social impact career transitions. <gasps> Take a breath. <laughs> so without any further ado, I would like to introduce our guest, Nancy. Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Now, when we were devising the questions for this podcast we had a lot to ask firstly because i think you've done really amazing things with your career and just your life in general but also because given what's happening in the world um, right now and given your experience it's so great to learn from and talk to someone who is right in the thick of it and and doing work to create social change which is amazing so first question I'd be really keen for the sake of the audience if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to the sector that you're in. Um, yeah, so I I was born in and grew up mostly in Montreal, Canada, as well as living in Belgium and Scotland um, while I was growing up. But my experiences as a child really have influenced where I am today in terms of my career and my passions. So I grew up always feeling like I was an other. Mm-hmm. I always felt different from everyone else because I was in a majority white and French speaking suburb of Montreal. Um, and I was simply a, a double minority there I because I'm ethnically Chinese and I speak English. And so I always felt a bit like a foreigner or an alien in that land. Um, and I think You know, when I was growing up, I I watched a lot of American media because we're so close to the U.S. border. Um, And I really resonated a lot with the black, white racial tensions and discrimination depicted through media. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of that that experience of being othered. And um, also when I read To Kill a Mockingbird as a teenager, you know, really became my favorite book. And um, I was very stirred up about the social and racial injustice depicted in that book. Um, And I I do think a lot of those early formative experiences influenced my desire to work in social impact and racial equity. Great. And for the sake of our listeners, would you be willing to talk a little bit more about that book, To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah, sure. Um, The author is Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, So it's a really well-known book, and it's um, usually assigned reading in American high schools. And um, it is somewhat controversial, though, I I think, you know, especially now in talking about racial justice. But at the time, I think it was a really stirring um, fictional account of a Black man who's wrongfully convicted of rape um, and told through the lens of a, a young white woman whose father was actually um, the the attorney on the case. So it's, you know, it's a it's a very well-written book. It's it's really, I think, a really beautiful book. Um, and really um, just 
touched my heart about, about the issue. I just remember picking it up and not being able to put it down when I read it. But if people get a chance, please, please do read this book. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Now you talk about your upbringing, influencing your um, passion to work in the social impact sector, but before you actually worked in social impact, you were working as an engineer and, and in the tech world, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. how was your experience um, in the engineering tech world like before you switched? And how was your experience at MIT and Georgetown like? Because those are really good universities. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I'll start with MIT and Georgetown and then talk about the tech sector. So you know, when I compare those schools, those two schools, the experiences were kind of like night and day. Um, you know, both, I mean, what they have in common are they're, they're both well-known within the U.S. and they both have a lot of really smart people who attend um, and are great academic institutions. Um, but MIT, I'd say, was, you know, a really grueling place in terms of the academic coursework. Um, you know, they say it's like drinking from a, from a fire hose and, um, you know, people pull all-nighters constantly and it's, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I met the smartest people I've ever known there and MIT's education was invaluable. It really taught me how to think, rigor- think rigorously and to solve problems and to see possibilities where other people are unable to. Um, you know, one area I think it really could work on, though, is, is teaching students about how technology intersects with in ethics and public policy, mm. because um, I don't really think students graduate understanding the concept of unintended consequences and societal impacts of the technology that they're creating. And I'd say that MIT is very, very left-brained and um, could just use a little bit more balance mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, Georgetown, on the other hand, felt like it was my you know, liberal arts education. It really helped round me out. Uh, it was really interesting going to a school that was founded by Jesuits and has a very strong religious tradition, mm-hmm. um, especially around social justice. Even though, you know, that religious tradition didn't directly reflect in my public policy graduate program or the coursework, but it was just neat being an institution that had that Jesuit history. Um, the public policy program was great. It was um, fairly small, so I got to know the faculty pretty well and Um, Georgetown also attracts a lot of great adjunct faculty because the school's location in Washington really opens it up to um, a lot of interesting people coming in to teach both as adjunct adjunct as well as guest faculty. Um, So at Georgetown, I really learned about how to think about and analyze policy and its impacts. So that really complemented my MIT education. But on, in contrast, I noticed that Georgetown, um, you know, because government tends to, towards upholding status quo, I noticed the program didn't really necessarily promote the creative out of the box thinking that I witnessed at MIT. So, mm-hmm. so those, those two schools are quite, quite different. But it appears um, that it gave you really good, well-rounded experience and you met different people from different walks of life, which is great. Yes, yes, yep. absolutely. Yeah, and between MIT and Georgetown, I did work in the tech sector in Silicon Valley for a couple years. Um, I worked at two um, medium-sized hardware companies. Um, one was called Adapt Tech and the other one is Palm, the, the Palm handheld company. Mm. Um, And yeah, it was really interesting. I actually worked in non-technical roles within tech companies. I was a product manager and an engineering program manager. And, um, you know, it definitely felt very fast paced. You know, a lot of times we'd work on secret projects with code names and we couldn't talk about them outside the office. And it it felt, it felt kind of (laughs) cool. And we got to test products before they came out and, you know, all of that. So that, that was really neat. And also I was working there at the time um, when there was a real boom in in Silicon Valley. That was during, yeah, the dot-com boom actually. So Mm -hmm. it was quite a while ago. Um, So that was exciting, you know, to have stock options. Um, and all of that. But at the same time, I found that 
the Silicon Valley was very insular. People really didn't know or track what was going on in the world, what was going on nationally. Um, people were really focused only on technology news, learning about new startups, new technologies, um, but really not anything about social causes. And so it felt like this, this crazy bubble I was living in. Um, and literally classmates who just graduated from MIT were paper millionaires because of their stock options. Oh, wow. And so it just just was this unreal situation of, you know, all this wealth concentrated in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest of the world didn't, didn't seem to reflect that. Right. So it, that's what caused me to leave was just this, this huge disparity and not feeling like my work in Silicon Valley was driven with any kind of social mission. Right. So that's really interesting because obviously people are driven by very different things and people might be driven by by money. Um, and, you know, as you said, that was a very, very lucrative sector to be in. It still is a quite a lucrative sector to be in. And I'm guessing maybe family or friends were also quite excited at the fact that you'd be working in such an industry. So how was it like switching to a sector which is impactful in in many different ways, but might not necessarily be as uh, financially lucrative. How was that received? Yeah, it was not well received by a lot of people. (laughs) I mean, so basically, yeah. So I worked um, in tech for about four or five years. And then um, I left to go work in um, campus and inner city ministry in Washington, DC. And um, that switch was was challenging because my my family really did not approve of that. They felt like I was throwing away my MIT education, throwing away my tech career, because at the time I was an engineering program manager, which was a pretty good role for someone who was 25 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they they thought I was just throwing away all my options for for marriage. Um, career, money, everything. They, they just thought it was oh, wow. a huge mistake. Um, and then my college friends also, I think, really couldn't understand what I was doing. I mean, they had no concept, especially if they weren't Christian, um, for what campus ministry is. So, right. you know, I think for them, they were just confused. They're like, what is she doing? And then my, my Christian friends were super supportive, though. I mean, both supportive in terms of emotional and spiritual support, but financially supportive as well, because I had to, for, for, for three years, I had to raise my full salary um, from friends and churches and other ministry supporters. So um, I received a lot of support from the Christian body, but not from family and secular friends. Oh, wow. That's really powerful and, and very interesting. Um, and it seems as if you you really did take that opportunity when you were transitioning to, um, you know, share with, with your Christian friends, brothers and sisters and, you know, pray and seek guidance from the Lord. Did you know anything about the social impact sector before you transitioned? Um, did you do any research beforehand to get to know more about it? Yeah, I did. So actually what happened was I worked in tech for a few years and then I took a three month leave of absence from my job to live in Washington, D.C. to help um, a friend of a friend launch an urban youth ministry called Little Lights Urban Ministries in Southeast D.C. Mm -hmm. And through that experience, you know, living across the street from a housing project and being really instrumental and helping to start the organization. I did learn a lot at least about what it's like to start a small community-based nonprofit. And I also, you know, tried to do some informational interviewing with people about potential social impact jobs. But um, there were a couple of things at that time that were challenging. One, um, you know, the social impact field was very nascent. So it wasn't super clear um, what types of professional opportunities they there were. Like right now, you know, there are graduate programs that are focused on social impact. There are conferences. There's so many online resources that mm-hmm. um, learning about social impact right now is so different than when it when um, I was looking in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so I just wasn't able to figure out, um, you know, what pathways there were that matched my skill set. Um, and then 
the other issue was, you know, working full time in Silicon Valley, like after I returned from Little Lights and, you know, being in San Francisco area, I just didn't really have a network of people who were really plugged in with social impact work. So, you know, when I was doing informational interviews, it was pretty limited in, in who um, I could reach out to via my network, which was mostly tech oriented. So that's why I decided I needed to kind of quit my job, leave Silicon Valley, move to Washington, D.C., and, and really throw myself into um, the community there because I felt like um, D.C., because of the big public sector and then big, large nonprofit sector, there would just be a lot more exposure to social impact careers. And I can definitely say that was a massive leap of faith, being able to do that, <laughs> especially in a, a time whereby, as you say, social impact careers, there was, I mean, there, there probably still isn't like a, um, a direct route or, or a clear route to, uh -uh. to getting into the sector. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, you know, that time was just, there was probably very little information out there. It was, I think it was quite a new term, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I don't even that. think that term existed, or yeah. if it did, it wasn't used as commonly as it is today. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so kudos to you. And just for the sake of our interviewers, because I found out this information um, a couple of weeks ago, how many <laughs> interviews did you do um, to gather that information? Because I think this is really important for people to know. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'd say during the time I was on staff, like working in ministry in D.C. for, you know, two-ish, two, two, three years, plus the time I was in graduate school, which was a two-year program, I did 70 to 100 informational interviews. Wow. Um, and I, I talked to a really wide range of people where, you know, who are in different types of graduate programs, ranging from like, you know, public interest law to social work to counseling to public policy, you know, just the whole gamut, um, as well as people working in a wide range of um, social impact oriented careers, whether it was working in the government or international development, philanthropy, um, impact investing, um, you know, rent, working at large nonprofits, small nonprofits, it's just a huge range of uh, interviews. So yeah, it was a lot of work. That's amazing. It's a lot of work, but it was, I think, a demonstration of, of how passionate you are and how much you wanted to know more about the sector, which is great. So tip for people out there who want to, you know, know more about the sector, maybe 70 interviews you don't have to do, but, you know, especially in this, this time, there's way more information on social impact, which is, which is great. But if you're passionate about something and you, you want to learn more information, go out and do it. Nothing, nothing should stop you. So great. So, um, you moved to the social impact sector, uh, and you know since then you've worked for a number of institutions: the Urban Institute, Catalyte, the Stanford Research Institute, um, so many, and and now more recently the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. What skills do you think, um, as an engineer, helped you um, give you give you an edge in the social impact field, or maybe made you more competitive or more attractive to um, employers? Yeah, I mean, overall, I, I think the problem solving, analytical and strategic thinking skills that I learned at MIT will always be useful in any and every role I'm in, no matter what sector. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even though I can't actually remember any of the content from my engineering <laughs> classes, um, I think I'm, I'm really, really skilled at finding the most optimal solution in a resource constrained environment. Um, which is, you know, the nonprofit sector and the public sector. It's always about, you know, trying to meet a lot of need with limited resources. So that that's just super useful. Um, and I think, yeah, with, in terms of the space, I, I feel like my, my background in engineering just distinguished me um, because First of all, there are very few people with technical backgrounds that go into social impact. Mm -hmm. And then second, um, there, there aren't that many people with strong analytical and quantitative skills that work in social impact. So for example, a lot of organizations have job openings for people who work in monitoring and evaluation. Right. And I think that's a really great way to get into the sector. But um, a lot of people who work in the sector are not necessarily quantitatively oriented. 
Um, and so that's really my entry point into the sector was basically trying to adapt my analytical skills to match the needs of the sector through the program evaluation work. Great. That's amazing. And I think, again, we reemphasize the fact that because the social impact sector is now so broad and you can lit literally come from any field um, and join, um, it's encouraging, I guess, for, for the listeners to know that even if you do come from a certain background, which seems totally irrelevant, it actually isn't. And you could transfer skills that are just as useful to somebody who might have studied something that seems more relevant. So that's great. Thank you for sharing that and sharing your experiences. Now, we talked a little bit at the beginning about um, your experiences growing up and how that influenced the passion you have to work in the social impact space. And you talked about, you know, the the things that you learn about racial relations um, in the U.S. and the history of it. Um, and you currently work for the Justice and Opportunity Initiative at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Um, I'd be really keen to to hear more about the work that you do. Um, and, and the role that you that you have within that initiative. Um, yeah, and I think maybe first I'll share a little little bit about Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and, and the justice opportunity work and then share about my role. So, um, you know, CCI is basically a technology company that does philanthropy. Mm -hmm. um, we, are, we are the um, LLC owned by Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan. And essentially we, we are their, their private philanthropy. Um, and we have three streams of work, which are science, education, and justice and opportunity. Um, the science work is really focused on um, harnessing technology to cure disease. Um, the education work is focused on harnessing technology to address K-12 education. Um, and then justice and opportunity is really focused on um, both grant making and technology to um, support different causes within that initiative. So the main issue areas we are focusing on right now are criminal justice reform, immigration reform, and affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And um, within Justice and Opportunity, my role is to manage and, and basically establish the monitoring and evaluation function. Um, and essentially the m and &E function um, is intended to quantify to some extent and, and qualify what the impact of our grant making has been in those three issue areas. So basically we're trying to answer the question of, you know, how did this philanthropy make a difference in the world within those, those three issue areas? Um, and I, I decided I, I wanted to transition to CZI because I came from a philanthropy background through my time at Arabella Advisors where, where I did a lot of philanthropy consulting with different clients, um, but also the fact that I have a tech background and, and CCI is at its heart a tech company. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was a really interesting intersection between tech and philanthropy. So that's one reason why I, I joined CCI. Great. Now, the Justice and Opportunity Initiative in particular is um, a really fascinating one because you you tackle um, a lot of things that are quite pertinent in, in today's society, um, you know, uh, criminal justice reform, immigration, housing, etc. Um, I wonder what are the most, you know, eye-opening things you've learned about the realities of issues like mass incarceration, um, immigration, et cetera, et cetera, through your role and experiences in, you know, talking with people in, in that field. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I was really interested in those issue areas prior to joining CZI. So, um, you know, obviously reading a lot um, by Brian Stevenson um, was, you know, that was super eye-opening to learn about mass incarceration through his work. And um, we do support some of his work through CZI, especially the movie that just came out, Just Mercy. We, we supported the Represent Justice campaign that accompanied the movie. Um, but I think what, what I really learned at CZI that was interesting about these issue areas um, is there's, there's quite a bit of support from political conservatives for criminal mm -hmm. justice reform. I think prior to coming to CCI, I, I always viewed criminal justice reform as a very progressive issue, you know, progressive politically. Um, and then to realize that um, there's actually quite a bit of support from political conservatives 
um, was eye-opening. And, you know, I really appreciate CZI's particular strategy around building broad coalitions that are bipartisan um, mm -hmm. to support and advance criminal justice. So that, that actually was the most surprising thing for me because I knew a lot of the facts and figures about criminal justice coming in, but just in terms of strategies to build support, um, the broad coalition building was what was um, eye-opening and also like fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating. And I, this, this next question is a large one. And given the context of the, the society where we're kind of dealing with today and the issues we're grappling with today, um, we're having conversations around uh, racial inequalities, both in relation to uh, the criminal justice system, but also in terms of healthcare with um, COVID um, coming up. But I just wonder um, from your experience or maybe both um, personally and, you know, through the, the work that you do, why is the criminal justice system in the US, um, why are there still um, particular racial inequalities when it comes to, to the criminal justice system in the U US? Um, yeah, you know, first I want to say I'm not an expert on this, but mm -hmm. um, I can share what I know. And also I would love to refer listeners to either watch um, the documentary 13th on Netflix or yeah. the documentary True, True Justice on HBO, which is about Brian Stevenson's work. Um, but so here, here's my perspective. I think there's a really long history of racial injustice in the U.S., uh, as we know, um, and so, so the current racial inequalities that are existing and exacerbated by the criminal justice system are rooted in history. So um, for the black community, it really began with slavery, um, but then you know, even after the Civil War and um, Reconstruction, it morphed into convict leasing where um, people who were black were, were basically targeted for certain um, violations of vagrancy laws, et cetera, and then you know, imprisoned, and then were forced to provide free labor to, um, to you know, the, pro probably people they previously worked for when they were slaves. Mm -hmm. um, so that was convict leasing. And then, and then that morphed into Jim Crow segregation. And even after the civil rights movement, it morphed into what we now call the new Jim Crow, which is mass incarceration. Um, and the new Jim Crow stems from the war on drugs in the 1980s during the Reagan administration, which basically created drug sentencing policies that um, disproportionately targeted African-Americans without explicitly doing so. Like it wasn't you know, written in law, like we are gonna target you know, African-Americans, but the way they created these drug sentencing policies, um, it seemed like it was targeting that group um, and that's why there is a significant overrepresentation of Black individuals in um, U.S. prisons today. And that's why there was an explosion in the prison population since the 1980s. Um, and there's a really good book called The New Jim Crow, written by a law professor named Michelle Alexander, where she explains all of this really clearly. Um, so, you know, and I, I think there's also a really long and complicated history between law enforcement and the Black community stemming mm -hmm. from when law enforcement was used to hunt down and return escaped slaves to their slave owners. Um, and more recently, the war on drugs allocated funding to militarize the police um, and, and then also to set up policies to encourage police to target Black communities. Um, and also up until today, police unions have been so well-funded and so strong politically um, that it's been almost impossible to hold the police accountable. And so that's why there's a real call to defund and divest the police through the current Black Lives Matter movement. Right. And do you think the criminal justice system as it stands doesn't focus enough on rehabilitation? Oh, right. Yeah, it, it really doesn't focus on rehabilitation. Right. Um, it's a very punitive system. Um, and, you know, there, it, it's not about restorative justice. It's not about redemption, um, which really diverges from where I come in my Christian faith. I, mm -hmm. I really think that, you know, it like 
you know, our Christian faith, like the heart of the gospel is about giving people second, third, fourth chances that, you know, everybody has the potential for redemption and the fact that our acts, you know, shouldn't define or brand us for life. Um, and I, I do think God's will for us is to be restored um, to him. And, um, and sadly, the U.S. criminal justice system is really about punitive justice. They're, they're, you know, it's not set up to rehabilitate people to return them to society because, you know, people, you know, go through the prison system, come out, and so many of them recidivate and go back to prison um, because they're just not positioned to get a job because a lot of employers will run background checks and they won't hire people who have criminal convictions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I think like a really great pr um, criminal justice system is in Scandinavia, for example, which is much more about restorative justice, treats people like they're human mm -hmm. um, and is really geared towards the goal of always returning people to society, restoring people to society. So the U.S., um, carceral system really, really needs to change. It really needs to become a lot more restorative and there, there needs to be a complete reform and overhaul. Right. So you talked about your faith, which, which, which is really important. And, you know, um, through what you've told me, it seems as if your faith has had um, an impact on how you view um, these issues. I wonder how your um your faith uh, being a christian has helped you navigate the problem of justice uh um forgiveness and repentance and i think some people might argue that the reason why sentences might be so harsh is because if someone's done a crime they have to do the time and depending on how harsh that crime is you know the time will be adjusted according to that so what would you from a christian perspective how do we have an honest conversation with people about the importance of justice which is important um, and if someone has done something wrong there should be um, a punishment for that but then also how do we then have the conversation around okay once the punishment's been done how do we effectively reintegrate someone into the community and how through christian principles can we do that it's a big question but i think about this a lot so i wonder what you think yeah that is really challenging and it's also challenging because you know in scripture you do see a lot of stories of god you know just punishing people yeah. like literally strike them down dead <laughs> and it's like oh okay um i guess you know i guess i think a lot about the shift from the old testament to the new testament and the fact that we're living you know in a time where you know christ has come um died on the cross for us and and rose again so i think part of it is is thinking about like what does it mean that ultimately Christ's death on the cross took the brunt of the punishment for whatever sin I commit mm -hmm. um, or anyone commits, right? So, so there's that. So like how much of the punishment, the punitive justice was fulfilled through the cross. But then we also live in this, in this um, day to day where, yeah, you know, there are people who commit violent crimes. So what do we do about them? What does, what does justice look like for them? And so I, I think it, it all depends on on how you think about justice, so or or like our criminal justice system and the purpose it serves. So is it is it there to protect us from people who commit violent crime? Um, is it there to help restore those people who commit violent crime so they you know once they no longer are in danger of doing that you know to bring them back into society? Um, or is it there just to like make people suffer for <laughs> committing those crimes? Um, and so it's, it's trying to find the, the balance between those. I mean, the third option about, you know, making someone suffer, I don't like thinking of it that way. Like thinking about like how people can be brought to a place of repentance and restoration. Um, so I, I think, I guess, I guess it, it really depends on, you know, how people think about scripture and how to apply it and, I just really think a lot about what is in the New Testament. Um, and I, I feel as though, you know, Jesus, you know, calls people to forgive, forgive multiple times. And forgiveness doesn't mean absolution. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that there are no consequences to the crime. It just means to me that um, you release that emotional um, 
tie, you know, the anger that you feel about the crime that was committed um, and that you eventually end up blessing that person and, and wishing that God would restore them. Um, and so like in the criminal justice system, then what would that look like? And to me, it would mean um, basically serving serving time in a way that um, would restore them to society, but also send a message that, you know, we, you know, can't just commit crime and not expect any consequences. Mm -hmm. um, but that, you know, you do, you will lose some freedom. And also it's to protect other people um, that that's part of the loss of freedom. But yeah, this is a really challenging question. I think that's what, you know, people are grappling with right now because um, in the criminal justice work, I think the low hanging fruit was, you know, decriminalizing certain crimes like, you know, marijuana possession or smoking mm -hmm. marijuana like that. Those seem like easy crimes to kind of expunge or like decriminalize. But now it's starting to get to the point where I have to think about, OK, there are people who are actually imprisoned for fairly serious crimes that were violent, potentially like. What about those people? What does it mean to um, reduce incarceration and potentially um, have early release for people who had committed violent crimes? So um, it's it's hard to grapple with because you're thinking about your own personal safety and yeah. it kind of goes beyond just punishment. So I don't have any clear answers, but I think overall, I, I would like to think that we we can give people second chances. Like if we can see that someone has actually changed and repented um, and, you know, really wants to start fresh, I, I would hope that our society could give that person a second chance. Amen. And that actually reminds me of a specific um, Bible verse, Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, where it says in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And as you rightfully say um forgiveness is a central part of um of the story of jesus christ and how he came to save us from our sins and you know as christians we believe that humans are sinful by nature uh, but it's only mm -hmm. through you know the redemptive power of of jesus christ that we we were saved um and, and by believing in him we are saved um i'm really interested to know more positively, I guess, what the greatest impacts um, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative has has had on this. One that I that I found, which was really interesting and really cool, actually, on the website, was um, uh, a program called the Last Mile, which um, helps teach computer coding skills to prepare incarcerated individuals for re-entry into society, which I thought was really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So they're a grantee of ours and um, we have provided them funding to work in prisons. And actually, um, I believe one of my colleagues at Chan Zuckerberg, he is formerly incarcerated himself and was at San Quentin Prison. And I think he actually learned his coding skills originally through the last mile. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, so that that is definitely a great program. Um, and a lot of the work we do actually is not so much direct services work like the last mile, but we actually fund a lot of advocacy and policy change. And mm -hmm. so um, one of our biggest victories most recently was that um, last week we found out that the U.S. Supreme Court rejected Trump's attempt to dismantle DACA, which is basically a program that protects the status of dreamers who are undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually had funded a lot of advocacy work around this. So we really consider this a huge victory. And I do believe that um, our funding helped um, contribute to this. So that was, that was really amazing. Um, right now we're also funding, co-funding the Clean Slate Initiative, which is basically promoting policy reforms in a number of states to automatically expunge people's criminal records so that they can have second chances at employment and other opportunities. Um, so that's been really interesting work and it's brought a lot of great partners to the table. And um, we've also done significant investment in uplifting the voices of formerly incarcerated people who historically haven't surprisingly been part of the criminal justice reform conversation before. Um, so we're, we're providing funding and capacity building to support, support to build up these leaders and, um, 
And then we're just also doing a lot of work to advocate for policies to reduce incarceration at the state level. But as you know, policy change takes many, many years. And mm -hmm. so we, we've only started funding these areas in the past three years. So, so it's going to take a while to see you know, all of the work unfold and to really reap the benefit. Amazing work. And one thing um, that I find quite powerful about the, the initiative is that even though it's a really large um, philanthropic organization, a private foundation, um, you also emphasize the importance of, of growing grassroots power um, mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, emphasizing, you know, that, that, that people from the bottom up do need a voice. Um, yeah. So I wonder how, um, and this is an off the cuff question, but I just wonder how impactful that has been, just being able to hear stories and hear experiences, whether it's from immigrants or formerly incarcerated people and how that's helped influence the work that you do to help advocate um, for change. Yeah, actually movement building is a huge part of our work. We have um, several people who work on a team called the Movement Capacity Building Team. It, mm -hmm. it, it exists specifically to build capacity of organizations um, to build these movements of people. So we, we definitely believe in that. And, um, and so I think we're, we're pretty unique in that way. I don't know other funders that provide that support. So we literally provide money, training, um, and a lot of coaching around how to, how to build movements. So we're building a movement of formerly incarcerated people. We're building a movement um, to support uh, a status, an immigration status called TPS, temporary protected status. So we're doing a lot of movement building around that. We're doing some movement building related to affordable housing in the state of California. Um, so, and, and we actually have a lot of people on our staff who have done community organizing themselves. And so what I love about my colleagues is we have a combination of people who worked in policy and politics and movement building and community organizing, as well as people who are directly impacted. You know, one, you know, one person was undocumented and she runs our immigration work. Our wow. formerly incarcerated um, colleague runs the formerly incarcerated people program. So we have uh, a lot of people who have direct experience with the issues that they're working on, which I think is great. Great, that's fantastic. You guys are doing such great work, so timely. Um, and I just hope it continues and continues to make a great impact. It's fantastic. Um, one question that I haven't asked you yet, and I actually think is really important, um, given this is a Christian podcast and we're talking about faith, is how you actually came to faith. Um, so we haven't really talked about how you got to, to accept Jesus Christ as your savior, um, and whether that was maybe as a result of being brought up in a Christian household or, or not, how, how was your experience? Yeah. So interestingly, my, my mother was Christian. My dad was not. Hmm. And, um, because my mother mainly spoke Chinese, had very little, knew very little English, um, and we grew up mostly in Montreal in a French speaking suburb. She didn't go to church because there was right. no, you know, Chinese church nearby. Um, but she really wanted me to know about Jesus. So um, she ended up, unbeknownst to her, she, she ended up um, allowing the Jehovah's Witnesses, like she didn't realize they were a cult, but she ended up letting <laughs> the Jehovah's Witnesses come over to our house every week. Um, like I think for five years to do Bible study with me, <laughs> two hours, two hours oh. a week for five years. Yes. So, um, cause I think she thought, Oh, great. Here's some people who know the Bible, who speak English are willing to come over and study with my daughter. Um, and so I, I did learn a lot about the Bible, but then also had to unlearn some of it after I actually became a Christian. <laughs> um, but that was her way of introducing me to faith. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and she she did not know because of her her lack of English skills. She didn't realize they were a cult. Um, but then, yeah. So when I was a child, I learned about the Bible through the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then when I went to college, I thought I was a Christian, um, but I really wasn't. And apparently, several of my classmates freshman year were praying for me that I'd become a Christian. They told oh, wow. me it was ten years later. Um, and then one day, my junior year of college, I just 
it was Easter Sunday. I just woke up and I, I just felt this really strong compulsion to go to church. I hadn't been going to church and I found, um, a church service in Harvard square, went there and then started really like earnestly trying to find a church and just asking everyone I knew. And it turned out about a third of my friends in college were Christian who I, I didn't realize till I actually was asking about church. Um, so then I started attending and then I ended up going to the Sunday school class on cults and I happened to drop into the class on the Sunday, they were talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. So, <laughs> so after that, I realized they were a cult and kind of, you know, renounced that mm -hmm. and um, I became a Christian. So, so that, that's sort of my short journey to Christ. That is so amazing, so powerful and so funny how God works, that God can use a situation that might have been potentially not so great um, and use that as an opportunity to guide you to, to finding Jesus Christ. That's, mm -hmm. that's amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, great, so thank you so much for sharing uh, that. Thank you for sharing more about just your journey and the amazing work that you are doing at the moment. Now, I'm very aware that a lot of the listeners are budding students um, or people who are interested in a career change. And one thing you didn't mention, but I think is really important to know is you, you did launch a, a kind of a, an online platform called Social Impact Yodas. And it's basically a platform that I believe helps people who want to transition or want to know more about the sector. Um, I'm really keen to know you know, what's inspired you to, to launch something like this um, and, you know, what, what it does, what it does for people. Sure. Um, yeah. So just for everyone out there, socialimpactyodas.org is a web blog. It's a blog that um, basically showcases a number of people who have been working in the social impact sector for a while. So it showcases their journeys, different perspectives, advice that they have. I write a lot of articles offering advice based on what I've learned. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why I launched it was that a lot of people on LinkedIn will contact me asking for informational interviews and advice on social impact careers. And I find that I'm, I'm often answering, you know, very similar questions over and over, you know, a lot of times it's, oh, how do you get into philanthropy or how do you get into impact investing or what is social impact? Um, or should I go to graduate school? So there are a lot of, of common questions that come up and I thought it would be easier to codify a lot of those perspectives online and share them with people. And, you know, also because of my broad network, I know a lot of people have been in the sector for a long time and wanted them to invite them to also weigh in on their perspectives. Hence the name Yodas is all around, you know, having really, you know, wise people share, Good share their wisdom. Yes. And also it happened that um, I had watched the Mandalorian and baby Yoda is really cute. So that sort of inspired the name for the, the blog. Fantastic. Um, now you say a lot of people came to you, you know, for informational interviews and, there's probably a lot of information out there on social impact at this point in time. But if you could give maybe one or two top tips to students or career changers interested in joining the social impact space, what would they be? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it earlier around the informational interviews. Like mm -hmm. I really, really can't emphasize how important doing informational interviewing is to, you know, find out what's out there. Um, you know, and, and talking to people, finding people working in jobs that you are interested in and asking them how they got there. Did they go to graduate school or not? You know, how did, you know, what path did they take? Mm. But specifically, you know, if you're an early career, you're in your early career, um, I really want to like caution you to think about what it means to take on more debt if you decide to go to graduate school and, you know, make sure that you have a way to pay for it. Because a lot of people, um, often, you know, aren't thinking about like what their earning potential is after graduate school and a lot of social impact jobs don't pay well. Um, so people end up in a lot of debt and they're not able to live the lifestyle that they want to, you know, they end up like in San Francisco living four people in a three bedroom apartment and um, it's, it's not what they really wanted to sign up for. Um, 
-hmm. And so, and it's also being realistic about the type of social impact job you want and how competitive it is to get. So for example, a lot of people want to work in philanthropy or impact investing, um, but those are very, very competitive jobs, um, even though, you know, they might pay decently well. So for mid-career folks who are looking to transition into social impact, I really want to ask them to first consider whether they can find ways in their current jobs to have impact. Uh, a lot of times it's just being creative and thinking about, yeah, you know, actually through my job right now, I, I, you know, I have a lot of influence at my company. I know the HR director. I can talk to them about hiring formerly incarcerated people or talk to them about their diversity strategy. I mean, there's a lot you can actually do from where you are if you're creative mm -hmm. about it. Um, and if you really want to work in social impact, try to find a way to pivot in um, so that you can actually use and adapt your current skill set versus starting, you know, at an entry level position. Um, and I'd also suggest ex exploring, you know, volunteer consulting at nonprofits or serving on boards of directors to get some exposure before making the leap. I I've noticed that sometimes people outside the social impact sector tend to idealize and romanticize it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really best to go in with eyes wide open, especially because you're going to experience a significant salary drop. Um, and, you know, there's so many people who I know have worked in social impact for many years who are really burning out and actually want to transition out. Oh, wow. um, so sometimes I think the grass is greener, always greener on the other side of the fence. So I, I think just making sure you have, you collect all the information before making that leap, because that leap is pretty significant. That is very, very good. And um, I must say, I completely agree with you on the university's point, because I, I don't know very much about the US um, education system. I've heard it's expensive, um, but in the UK, you know, even if we, we do get funded to do undergraduate studies, it is still through a loan and the same thing applies to master's um, students. So when people come to me and ask me for advice, I say the exact same thing. If you are really keen to do um, a certain career path, just just be conscious of the fact that it will cost you quite a bit to do a master's um, in a specific field. So just do your research and just be completely sure that you're 100% happy to do it. And if possible, find scholarships or grants that are able to help you um, instead of maybe relying too much on loans. So great. Um, well, Nancy, thank you so much for joining the, the podcast today, for talking about your experiences, um, the work that you're doing currently in social impact uh, and just hearing about your passion for, for these these things um, that are so timely is just really encouraging, particularly at a time whereby there's so much going on in the world. It's just great to know that people like you are working um, really hard alongside others to, to advocate for change. So thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's been great chatting with you. Great. Thank you. God bless. Thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, stay blessed and speak soon. Bye bye.